This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to Scholarly, this podcast that's brought to you by ATS Scholar and the ATS Section of Medical Education. I'm Nithin Seem, the Editor-in-Chief of ATS Scholar. And today we're gonna talk about training and deployment of medical students as respiratory therapy extenders during COVID-19, a paper recently published in the journal. I'm very pleased that I'm joined today by two of the study authors, Tom Hester and Dr. Jack Awashna. I'd like to start with uh, both of our study authors. Uh, First, Tom, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Tom Hester, and I'm a rising fourth year medical student at the University of Michigan. Great, thank you, and thank you for joining us, and thank you for uh, for writing for submitting the paper. Uh, and Dr. Awashna, if you wouldn't mind introducing ourselves uh, yourself to our listeners. Absolutely, although my title's got to be longer than Tom's. Uh, <laughs> so I'm the Alphaeus W. Tucker, uh, MD, Collegiate Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, and I'm also a research scientist and physician at the VA Ann Arbor. And uh, Nathan, I just need to mention, of course, that I'm speaking here on my own behalf, not uh, as nothing I say is the official policy of the U.S. government of the Department of Veteran Affairs. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. So why don't we get started uh, with uh, some context before we talk about the actual paper and intervention. So, you know, I've seen from the news, from social media that COVID-19 is certainly taking quite a toll in Michigan. So if if you wouldn't mind telling us, uh, please describe the surge you all have faced and and how it compares right now in terms of ICU capacity uh, compared to when you had the peak or or even if you're still there. Yeah. Thank you. It's gotten a lot better. We're down to probably just a really, really bad day levels of capacity, um, but we've largely contracted back to our original footprint. Um, At the maximum footprint, I think the university hospital had something like 300 um, COVID patients uh, in-house at any one time, and I think we were running something like four to five times our normal number of medical ICU beds. Um, Over at the VA Ann Arbor, where I focus most of my care during the COVID epidemic, we surged up to running three large ICUs um, simultaneously, two that were run by us and one that was taken over by anesthesia, and anesthesia basically ran a COVID unit as well. Um, we've likewise contracted back down to just sort of one full ICU of mixed COVID and non-COVID. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so thank you for providing that context. And, you know, when I, I read this paper, I was like, eh, that's a great idea. Um, but how did you all even, uh, you know, come to this idea? So this, the concept of you're overwhelmed, you've, uh, you know, exceeded your typical capacity, and so you're trying to get all hands on deck. So how did this idea of having senior medical students serve as respiratory therapist extenders uh, come together? Tom, do you want to start? You were the one who pitched it to me, so maybe if you talk about your thought process and then I can take over. Sure. Um, So it's, you know, It started, I think, actually the Sunday after you were kicked out of the unit, Tom, uh, because we had uh, spun up a new COVID unit, and we were then running basically two separate ICUs simultaneously. And a Sunday afternoon is traditionally the day that we give all of our fellows off at the VA Ann Arbor. Um, And so I was hanging out... um, doing whatever needed to be done. And we found that I was in two, that the RT was in a room and then 
there was a problem in a vent in the other room and because the RT was engaged, um, I gowned up and was talking to them and pretty quickly I discovered I was allowed to touch the vent. Um, and by the end of uh, that afternoon, I was basically functioning as an RT to help them get their stuff done and they were letting me do a lot of vent checks um, and actually tweak vent settings to help get better synchrony. And Nathan, I'm not sure what, um, what your university hospital's approach is. Our, we have a pretty strong tradition of physicians are welcome to talk to respiratory therapists, indeed encouraged to speak with respiratory therapists about ventilators, but under no circumstances should we ever touch a vent directly. Um, and by the end of that, uh, that block, I was, uh, the RTs were letting me uh, make vent changes as much as I needed to and report them to afterwards. The nurses were letting me reprogram pumps because that's what we needed to get done. And that was such a culture change that I said, my God, we're going to need more people to get this done, that all of our discussion to that point had focused on the shortage of machines. And it wasn't the machines, it was the expertise to run them. And so I sent Tom a text that said something to the effect of, hey, how could we think of how medical students could do things that could free up RTs so that our expert RTs are doing nothing but driving vents? Right. So what else does a medical what else does an RT do that you could maybe have someone else do so that RTs could do nothing but their highest value care? And that was really where Tom took the job took the idea and ran with it. Wow. Yeah, so so I had been off service for about a week when Dr. Awashina sent me that text about the RTE extender idea. Um, and I was ecstatic because at the time I was sitting at home just trying to stay busy and I wanted to get back in the hospital. Um, so within about couple hours of Dr. Washina sending me this text, I had assembled a team of five other medical students to help come up with the RTE role in its training curriculum. And then later that afternoon, I was on conference calls with RTs from around the country, trying to figure out how to make this vision a reality. That's, uh, that's remarkable. I think about what I was doing um, as a third year student and that I wasn't there, Tom. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty darn impressive. Um, and I think, Jack, you brought up a really interesting point. You know, I what I'll do is I'll, I'll go touch the vent, but I'll be, I'll grab the therapist. I'll, they'll be in there with me or I'll tell them exactly what I did. But there is a, a wide variation from talking to colleagues across the country. You're, I, I was very surprised. I hear that a lot, that the only people who touch the vent are the respiratory therapists. And clearly then when you go to a situation like this and you don't have enough respiratory therapists, um, you know, to go around and then nobody else touches the vent and, and that's a massive problem when you've got three ICUs, as you described, uh, full of uh, patients on ventilators. So that's a, it's really, really interesting. And so, so Tom, I need to hear a little bit more about this. So if you don't mind expanding on that. So how did you get together a, a group of respiratory therapists uh, across the country? Like, how did you even wrap your arms around trying to figure out a way to get med students to serve as these respiratory therapy extenders? So uh, I learned a lot about the powers of Twitter over the past month. Um, I actually, I made a professional Twitter maybe two months ago, hadn't posted anything. And my, one of my first posts was about the, the respiratory therapist extender position. And I just happened to connect with someone who was a representative of the AARC. And she literally called me within 15 minutes of a direct message. And then from her, she gave me a few other names. And I had talked to maybe five people that first day, just trying to wrap my head around what responsibilities the RTEs could safely and feasibly carry out as fourth year medical students, um, and also what tasks occupy RTs time that really shouldn't have to occupy their time. Well, 
thank you thank for that. And now I want to think, I, as I think about the, the logistics of this, it just sounds overwhelming. So I'm going to ask Jack maybe to, to start here. So as I think about just this, there are a lot of permissions that are required to get something like this going. So getting buy-in from the students, it sounds like Tom was working on that. I also have the respiratory therapist. And as you said, sometimes there are tensions between who can do what, then getting the administration to, to provide buy-in. And then you're trying to do this in real time during a pandemic. I can't imagine doing that. So could you walk us through how your team was able to do this? Because it's quite impressive to do this in, in a rapid period of time. I will. I mean, this is going to be the sanitized version, right? Um, and you'll have to buy me a beer someday if you want to hear the full longer version. That's a deal. Um, but the short answer is um, people in Detroit were dying. And a lot of people in Detroit were dying. And um, the University of Michigan and VA Ann Arbor said, we need to help. Um, and they were pulling people in actively. Uh, VA Ann Arbor, for the first time in the history of the VA, um, open to what is called a, a fourth mission, right? So we had at one point about half of the patients in our hospital, I think, were actually uh, civilians, right? Hum what we called humanitarian transfers, people who were not veterans, um, who historically had been banned from getting care at the VA, who instead were being provided care because we could help and it was part of our community. Um, but with that, there's a that question of how we get going. The first piece was to recognize that um, some pretty extraordinary leadership, and Steve Gay gets a ton of credit for this, as does Daphne Hawkins, um, had already squirreled away enough oxygen, enough parts, and enough ventilators, so we didn't have some of the problems that like our colleagues in Columbia had, of like literally like there weren't enough bags to push. We had the equipment, we just didn't have as many people readily available to provide the expertise. Um, and so it was really a couple pieces at once. One piece was uh, supporting the medical students as they worked with uh, our RT colleagues, um, including uh, Andy and Carl, who are co-authors on the manuscript, to really figure out what they could do and what could be trained up in a way that not merely the medical students would feel confident that they could do it, but the RTs would feel confident that they could delegate that in a provably safe way. The second piece was thinking through really defining where the need was, because of course all of our RT departments already have surge plans and already have other components. And so we needed to help them think about how this piece fit in. And as you know, under the intense cognitive load of a pandemic, just not wanting pieces is often a problem. Um, and one of the things Steve Gay and Daphne did really nicely was say, oh, this hadn't been a thing we thought about before, but let's figure out how we can fit it in. Um, and it, it, at the VA in Ann Arbor, there was a role for that. And then the third piece was really helping the administration think about um, two pieces of this. The first was a legal liability, right? Um, that universities, uh, hospitals are giant risk mitigation machines and exactly nothing about taking people who are not licensed and putting them in a role helps. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer ordered, uh, released an executive order. I think it's executive order 2020-30, right, Tom? That's right. Uh, which paragraph 2B says medical students, physical therapists, and EMTs may serve as respiratory therapists, distenders in whatever way the hospital deems that appropriate as part of the pandemic. And so having a pretty visionary governor who is willing to be out front and provide sort of broad legal coverage, uh, then let the hospital administration and the medical school switch from thinking about our learners as um, kind of an in loco parentis, how do we protect them? and more to, these are adults 
who understand risks and benefits and can make an informed choice about how they can contribute to a community of healers that they've already been a part of for years and were able to make that transition. Um, I'll leave it to you and your listeners to imagine how many conversations helping them think about that transition may have taken and just say that it happened relatively quickly and I'm very proud of uh, the people I get to work for who are able to, to reframe their thinking. Well, so I can only imagine as someone who's trying to, you know, start a small initiative and how many meetings it takes to get, uh, you know, buy-in when you have multiple stakeholders. But so if you wouldn't mind telling, like, I'm not going to ask you to say how many meetings, but how, like in re how many weeks was this from, from start to getting that off the ground? I don't know if Tom, you want to take that or Jack. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to estimate that it was about, two weeks from the vision to actually recruiting medical students as volunteer RTEs. Um, and I want to say probably 18 hours a day of, for those two weeks working through trying to uh, get all parties to agree and make sure that we we're ex executing everything safely. Um, in terms of the medical student side of this equation, uh, we worked under um, the greater scheme of something called M Response Corps which is a medical, uh, medical student run initiative by uh, Michigan medical students. It was created um, when we were pulled off services away for medical students to volunteer and, and contribute to the pandemic relief. Um, and they already had this infrastructure for us to work under um, so that we can ensure that our volunteers would be safe and that there was informed consent with the volunteering and that administration um, would buy into this program because it was within the M Response Corps um, infrastructure. So we actually had a list of over 300 medical students who had signed up to be a part of this M response, uh, M response course initiative. And through that, we sent an email to that listserv advertising the RTE position, going through um, you know, the tasks and responsibility of the RTE, what the vision of this position is, what the inherent risks of coming back into the hospital were so that um, these adult learners could make an informed decision about um, volunteering for this role. And then from there, we had about 50 students sign up and we randomly generated a list of 25 that we then offered the volunteer positions to. That's, that's remarkable. So, and, but you're not even talking about the actual training. So in two weeks, you did all this and you got a, a group of, of, of senior medical students trained to actually serve as the extenders. And so Tom, I'd ask. Oh, that just, it, it took them another seven days to get 30 people trained and in the hospital doing shifts already. You guys are making us, the rest of us look bad, all right? Uh, let's put it that way. So, so Tom, the, I'd ask you then uh, for this. So, and I, actually, one of the things I like about the paper, we're able to share the, 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 um, the curriculum, the, the exam. Um, and so I thought that was actually very helpful and it can serve certainly to help others. But we, would you mind uh, talking through uh, that, that educational process for our listeners, um, you know, in terms of, you know, we're an education journal at ATS Scholar. So uh, it looks like um, the learners were provided a mix of online and in-person education. So could you walk us through how those 25 volunteers were trained? Absolutely. And I love MedEd, so I apologize if I get lost in the weeds here. Um, so as you alluded, all right, perfect. The, uh, the RTE training was delivered in three separate parts. Um, there was two online components and then one in-person session. Um, the online portions of the course were hosted on Google Classroom, and we chose this as a platform because it's free, um, it's user-friendly, uh, there's really easy data collection, 
using Google Forms, um, and we could easily make it available to the public um, through open access. So um, we chose Google Classroom to host the class, uh, the online portions. Um, the first part of the curriculum was an online series of seven lectures, and we made these specifically for medical students who were training to be RTEs, and these focused on things like the anatomy and physiology of the respiratory system, um, an overview of respiratory failure, as well as a primer on mechanical ventilation. And then the second part to the online curriculum was more the tangible skills of what an RTE would uh, be expected to perform. Um, and these lectures were made for all healthcare professionals, um, and they focused on the step-by-step -step tangible technical skills that an RTE would need. And these are things like oxygen rounds, patient assessments, incentive spirometry, um, and just an overview of all the equipment that they'll, they'll need to know. Um, the final part of the training was an in-person training session um, led by a respiratory therapist uh, in which the content of the second part was reviewed and then students were able to uh, physically practice the skills in person uh, with RT oversight to make sure that they were competent in doing those skills. Um, we actually had to hold multiple of those in-person sessions to make sure that we were adhering to the social distancing guidelines of our institution. Um, and then we also created a pocket reference guide, which was distributed to all the RTEs for them to use while they're on the boards. Wow. So, and so uh, just a couple of uh, follow-ups about that. So, um, and where did you take this curriculum from? Is that something de novo or did you use some uh, prior AARC content? And then in terms of the in-person stuff, was that at the bedside or was that in a, a simulation center? Or how did you do that? Yeah, great questions. So in terms of the online curriculum, uh, that was just from good old lit review. So myself and my, my four medical student colleagues uh, over the period of probably three days created those seven lectures and it was reviewed um, by Dr. Awash and then also uh, Dr. Bruce G D. Giovine. Uh, Dr. Awash, you might have to uh, spell check me on that one, but he's also an intensivist in the Detroit area. Um, so we created those. And then in terms of the uh, in-person skills session, that was not bedside. That was actually just in a, in like a skills training area. Um, and then to follow up on that, we did schedule the RTEs. Um, first shift is kind of a, sh a shadowing shift with the respiratory therapists. So they did get some bedside training um, after they were already signed off on competency. Wow, that, that's amazing. Yeah, do, developing that de novo. Um, and then the final part is, as I understood it from the paper, that you um, uh, came up with an exam and that the, the, uh, if you're going to be an RT extender, you had to pass the exam. Uh, can you talk to that part as well? For sure, yeah. So we, we did have multiple built-in learning checks, uh, but I would say that the main purpose of those assessments was more to give the learners a chance to reflect and identify gaps in knowledge so that they could go back and do additional reading if they needed to. Um, you know, similar to a traditional medical school education, we really encourage that self-directed learning. Um, I, I think we were just excited to have such enthusiastic volunteers. We didn't really want to be gatekeepers, especially in a time when human capital is so valuable. Um, so while we understood and appreciated that we were training volunteers for real patient care, we also understood that human capital is valuable and we wanted to make sure that we found a way to get them in the hospital. So there was no set cutoff score that they had to get on these assessments. It was more um, identify what you know, what you still need to learn and go back and read to make sure that you filled those gaps when you enter the hospital. Uh, that's great. And I think that makes perfect sense, especially as you're trying to do this rapidly. So Jack, I don't know if you had anything to add other than you've provide that infrastructure and you got out of the way and let Tom and his team work their magic? 
Yeah, with, um, I would say it was part of our job to make less transparent to Tom and his team the amount of surveillance and the amount of testing that was being done by the RT supervisors. So from my perspective, as someone who uh, was very aware that parts of the system were broken and that enthusiasm is not a substitute for expertise, um, I wanted to make sure that these folks were gonna provide superb care uh, because if the RTs were, weren't actually in the unit uh, because they were actually double checking everything that had been done on the floors, that actually could be a net loss. Um, and so what Tom thinks of as the hands-on training sessions, um, I and the RT supervisors thought of as a relatively careful vetting session to make sure that they could do all these skills, that they could be upskilled. And then um, we also did very routine check-ins to make sure that people had no concerns that these were folks who were showing up doing the work uh, with levels of enthusiasm that we would hope for. And it was pretty easy because they all were, uh, but we wanted to have a scaffolding that we have whenever you have new colleagues, right? To make sure that those new colleagues, their mental model of what excellence is and your mental model of excellence are the same. Uh, that's a great point. That's, I think, the challenge with all, all the different stakeholders. And actually, you lead me uh, into the, the next question, because, again, I, I think um, we were discussing this offline. Like you, you think I think you both have both of you been very clear that you're not going, you're not asking a new uh, student who's quickly uh, a senior medical student who's quickly learned some of these skills to manage the most complicated rescue mode, put somebody on APRV and titrate, uh, you know, uh, a T, T low very closely, right? You're trying to have them to do some of the, the tasks. And then you're also making sure that all the members of the interprofessional team were comfortable. So I'm, I'm interested as you got through those two weeks and you got the first group deployed, um, first from the point of view of the intensivists, and also I'm sure you're hearing from nursing colleagues, respiratory therapy, therapy colleagues and so forth. So how were the respiratory extenders perceived by the other members of the interprofessional team? I don't know if you had personal experience or the feedback, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the feedback you received from your colleagues. As a physician scientist, I had the privilege of spending a couple months doing seven on seven off, which is not my standard work schedule. Um, and, uh, and so I had a lot of interaction with our respiratory therapists and obviously we were, we were working very closely together. The striking thing was I almost never saw the RTEs. Um, in particular, during a bunch of their weeks, I was in the COVID unit and a decision was made that because they had relatively the least PPE experience that we would start them in the least COVID-y places, which also tend sense. to be the lower acuity places. So I didn't really know they were there, except I'd occasionally see them like hustling back and forth down the elevators with that sort of med student, like, gotta get to the next one. <laughs> uh, but, the RT, but what I did notice was that I now routinely had two RTs as opposed to one RT in my unit, which is a world of difference uh, as your number of vents is going up. Um, and they would tell me, uh, they just periodically say like, man, the med students are awesome, like that they would do this stuff. And a lot of it was not glamorous work, right? That we were very clear that this was volunteering to help, not volunteering as an educational opportunity. Like you might learn something, but you weren't going to do the cool RT stuff your first week. You were going to stock hearts and you were going to do pulse ox check. And if that number was below 88, you were going to call for help. Um, and the RTs were thrilled by how willing people were to do the parts of their job that they didn't necessarily love as much, but that they knew were essential to sustained reproducible functioning of a great unit, right? 
Um, so they were very happy with them and were hugely impressed. I think also it meant a lot to them for med students to say, the way I can help is by doing the least skilled part of an RT. And for a med student to implicitly value RT expertise th to that degree by saying, tell me what you least like, what's least interesting to you and let me help do that. Not tell me what the coolest part of your job is and let me try to take that from you. I think that meant a lot um, and spoke to the interprofessional education and the character of our med students. Uh, that's great. And I think that really, you know, it warms your heart hearing that, you know, it's about the team and you're putting all the members of the team in the best position to succeed. And as you said, you had having, having a, a unit full of uh, vented patients, having two RTs versus one makes a world of difference as you're trying to manage those patients. So uh, Tom, I'd like to go back to you then and, and ask about that experience once after you described the educational training. So um, how was that for you? Um, uh, how were those first shifts? Did you feel adequately prepared with that hybrid learning that you described? And, um, you know, I think one of the things you also worry about would be, um, you know, feelings of stress, you know, wellness of the students. So how did you feel after your shifts? Great questions. Yeah. So in terms of the actual shifts, we scheduled six hour blocks for each of our RTEs. Um, and this is in compared to an RT that was working 12 hour blocks. We scheduled one RT to work the first six hours and a different one to work the second six hours just to try and limit the workflow because you know these were volunteers at the end of the day. Um, in terms of preparation, uh, I felt very prepared but I also had the luxury of creating the curriculum. So in terms of my classmates who weren't so lucky, um, they also felt mostly prepared with the stipulation that the one thing they felt least prepared for was the logistical stuff like knowing where the RT carts were, knowing where the supplies were and lacking access to certain uh, wards in the hospital because of key card access. So we quickly fixed those things, at least in terms of uh, identifying the logistics with that pocket guide that I referenced. Um, and in terms of access, we had a spare set of keys that students were able to use um, when acting as RTEs. Um, in terms of the actual experience, uh, it was phenomenal to work in a different capacity in the hospital. I think as a medical student, you get so stuck in this mindset that you always have to impress everyone and that you have to know every little bit about each patient you see. And I think in this role, it just kind of allowed me to open my eyes to more of the inner workings of the hospital and, and kind of stop caring about me getting evaluated and just care for the patients. You know, um, so one of the one of the best parts I think about coming back was doing those oxygen rounds and going room to room and seeing the patients and talking with them, letting them know they weren't alone. Um, because, you know, at that time, the hospital was stressed, the nurses weren't in the rooms as much as they usually were because they had more patients than usual. Um, so just they, the, the patients weren't allowed to have visitors. So just being in the room and being able to talk with them was definitely the highlight for me. Um, I would say in terms of my classmates, that was also echoed all around. They were just happy to be back, happy to be helping in some capacity. Um, it was an overall great experience for us. And didn't get a sense uh, of people feeling overwhelmed by, by those tasks um, um, uh, as you initially walked through it? So I wouldn't say overwhelmed. I would say the, the funniest thing about this is the thing that was most challenging at first was stocking our tea carts just because we didn't know what any equipment was. Uh, but in terms of the oxygen rounds, in terms of incentive spirometry, those were all things we were pretty confident with because, you know, we'd, we'd done our general medicine sub-eyes, we'd done our ICU sub-eyes, so we knew you know, the basics of that. But in terms of the actual equipment, that was the most stressful part. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So, you know, as we're 
coming to the conclusion of the podcast, you know, Jack, I, I, we'd spoke, spoken a little bit about this, uh, and I, I really found this to be very interesting, is I think a lot of the discussion related to COVID has been about um, supplies and spaces, you know, ventilators uh, shortage and hooking multiple people up to, to a single ventilator, uh, the lack of ICU beds and how to, how to deal with the surge. But, and there's been some discussion of physician staffing, but I think overall um, staffing consideration and making sure people are in the appropriate, you know, you have the appropriate expertise to care for those patients. I, I thought that got lost a bit in the conversation, at least, at least what I saw. So um, as you reflect on the surge, um, what lessons did you learn from this experience, if I may ask? At Michigan, there's this old phrase that goes back to Coach Bo, right? The team, the team, the team. And when you think about what makes a great team, like you need to have helmets, right? If you don't have helmets, you can't field a football team. And although our winged helmets are pretty cool, it's hard to believe that once you've got enough basic helmets, that the helmets are what's going to make the difference in the team. Um, that in fact, it's not merely the individuals on the team, but how well they function together as a group. And I feel like one of the things we've learned from the first wave is that we paid way too much attention to the equipment and the stars um, and not nearly enough attention to the line. Um, that when you look on Twitter today, somebody from the uh, NHS in the UK was suggesting that the UK's uh, nursing shortage could be solved by, re by getting the furloughed um, airline attendants to come back and serve as uh, nurses. And um, I, it feels like there's a deep disengagement with how specialized uh, and how excellent the best of our respiratory therapists and ICU nurses are. And this epidemic has reminded me how important a whole functioning of the team is um, and just how relatively modest uh, as an intensivist my contribution is. And we've sort of, most intensivists have at least rhetorically mouthed some component of that. Um, but you need pressers to go up in three rooms and you're looking at a bunch of guardrail pumps and you're like, I, I, uh, I could push uh, one-tenth of a cc of uh, epinephrine and maybe that'll stall long enough. You're very aware of how much routine excellence as opposed to drama hinges on our other co-professionals in the ICU. And this was an opportunity, I think, to have medical students come in and help learn uh, from the best of some of our respiratory therapists um, that I hope will stick with them as a lesson um, for the rest of their life about really valuing our uh, co-professionals. And I think what this taught me about the epidemic was to just so remember that supply lines and stuff matter, but the people are the heart of what make a great ICU. And it sounds quaint when I say it, um, but when you, I mean, we, we had these moments where I remember seeing a janitor um, basically in full papper gear, um, like jogging with two things of Virex and Kova wipes from one room to another because we needed to get one of the negative pressure rooms cleaned on time uh, to get somebody up from the ED. And I, to my detriment, um, had not paid as much attention to our environmental staff as I should have as full team members before this. And I hope that's not a mistake I'm going to make again. 
Well, that's really well said. And I, I, did, I do think it, it really puts into sharp focus the, this pandemic, all, all the members of the team. I, I thought that was a Lloyd Carline, the team, the team, the team. But, uh, but oh. I guess that goes back. God, now you're going to get me in trouble. I think I just like kidding. You, you misquote just that kidding. stuff, you get thrown out of the... <laughs> <laughs> that is just a, a fo- football trivia joke. So, um, And then so I wanted to wrap up, Tom, you know, I, I think this has been remarkable what, what you all have done. And, you know, I've see, seen um, some, some, I've heard anecdotes from, from several students. And I, it, the other thing that's hard to me, I think we're people like uh, uh, Jack and me, we see the future of medicine and, and we find it very inspiring uh, people like you. So uh, how is this, as you think about your career post COVID and hopefully this is our once in a hundred years event and we're not gonna have to deal with this again, but what do you see how this is informing and shaping what you're gonna do with your medical career? So I think for me, this experience has really shown me that when, when healthcare needs arise, uh, health systems can be so much more adaptable than we previously imagined them to be. Um, and I hope that our experience here can inspire others and my, my future self to continue to think outside of the box and be these agents of change when, when unanticipated things like COVID happen and we have these new needs to think out of the box and find unique solutions. Um, my biggest takeaway. All right. Well, I really want to thank you both for a, a, an excellent sort of uh, paper and a really fun podcast uh, to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, and please subscribe to Schol- Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player so you can stay updated whenever new episodes are available. You can read the open access article that's uh, entitled Training and Deployment of Medical Students as Respiratory Therapy Extenders During COVID-19 on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. I'm Nithin Seem for Scholarly. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.